I went to St. Louis University for my uh, last three years of college. My first three years of college were somewhere else, and you can do your own math on that. But uh, St. Louis University is the Jesuit school, and I had this wonderful class taught by Father Bede Pay on marriage, of all things. And uh, it was actually, I was single, and he was single, but it was really a rich exploration of... Uh, of marriage with some perspectives that I hadn't thought of and some I still don't share, but wow, he made an impression on all of us. One of the things that he said that really stuck with me is that um, joy will end if lamentation doesn't continue. We paused and asked him what he meant, and he said, without fasting, there can really be no feasting. Without understanding the origin of the sorrow of our own hearts and the world, we'll never really understand the pathway or a reason to, to celebrate. And that's probably um, nowhere more true than in relationship to our understanding of ourselves and what the church would call the doctrine of sin. Or, put in a harsher term that, by the way, has never been super popular, even though it's probably less popular now, our own depravity. So we want to explore our depravity, not only so that we might know sorrow and lament, which we should, especially during the season of Lent, but also that we might be pointed to um, the path for true and real joy. So let's look at um, these sobering words, especially those at the beginning of our passage, those first four verses which articulate the utter brokenness of humanity. But let's not make this about global humanity or even Portland humanity. Let's make this about the humanity in this room right now, me and you and the people around you. This passage speaks about ourselves. And um, let's then begin with that understanding because uh, it's impossible to understand the gospel. It's impossible to understand life. It's surely it if we do not comprehend the measure of our wretchedness. So, Soberly, that's my desire today, and hopefully we won't end there. So let's begin. The very first thing we see in the very opening words of, of our passage is that our uh, depravity, our brokenness, our wretchedness, our sinfulness is absolute. It's not really about what it doesn't mean in a moment, but what I want us to see first of all is that the Bible says that we're dead in our sin. There's, more, there's mortality in us. We're, we're not um, wounded in our sin. We're not, we're not sick in our sin. We're not even only dying in our sin. But we're told here that our trespasses and sins have inflicted on us death, that we are spiritually dead with everything that means about our inability 
to know God, to reach out to God, to find God, to love God, to love one another, to obey his word. We live in a culture that um, avoids contact with death. It's pretty uh, saccharine, really, and plastic almost. But if you um, lived in another age or even lived in another place in this age, you would know death and what it looks like. In, in my calling, um, I've been around um, a lot of dead people. I've held their hands. I've held their loved one hands. And there, there is something about death, naturally, of course, that is absolute and irretrievable. And that's why, that's why Paul used that language, spiritual condition. It's not a metaphor, it's a diagnosis. He's telling us the condition of our hearts without the intervening grace of God. That we are as incapable of speech or love or action spiritually as our loved ones after they have died are physically. And so the scope and the magnitude and the the extreme nature of our sin is the very first thing that we need to come to terms with. Now, of course, you probably don't feel that way, do you? Well, you have motions uh, and emotions and instincts. Um, those things can come from the natural part of us because God made us all moral beings and that's not erased. But ultimately, in the eyes of God, um, those are uh, the twitches of a dead person. And you'll do better. You'll have a, Father Bede was right, you'll have a better path to real hope and true joy if you acknowledge the depth of your sin. The second thing I want us to see is, of course, not only is, are we spiritually dead, but our problem is fundamentally moral. That's the language of these next two verses. And we won't spend, um, we won't go over every phrase in all of these 10 verses. But I want us to see some of these first phrases. Um, when the Bible speaks of trespasses and sins, um, you, you probably don't need somebody that went to seminary to tell you oh, that's moral language, overstepping bounds of offending an, a moral order. And the reason that that's so profoundly important in the context of understanding who we are is that it becomes for us... Um, a clue by which we can understand what our problem is. What is the fundamental human problem? I would make it even more personal. What is your problem? And after church, you can ask me what my problem is. And fundamentally, the Bible says our problem is a spiritual, as we've seen, we're dead, and a moral problem. Now, there are a lot of problems that go with this problem. This creates a lot of problems. There, there are systems and structures problems. There are economic oppression problems. There are civil oppression problems. There are social problems like racism. There are wounds from our families of origin. There are a lot of problems. And all of them can be engaged and addressed. But, but it is for us in our journey to self-understanding and, and then ultimately a pathway to hope, it is for us to look upstream from those things. What is upstream from them? 
Why is the world filled with economic and racial and sexual um, woundedness and oppression? Why is that? Have we just not figured out how to put society together properly? Do we, do we not know how to family, I made that into a verb, properly? Or parent properly? Well, let's get better at all those things. But the fact of the matter is that we have a moral brokenness in us that like a virus, or it's now part of our spiritual DNA, we will always and forever take into every new shape that we build a family by, or every, every government that we build, or every uh, bit of technology that we craft, that promise always and forever to solve our problems, but we bring our problems with us because of our depravity and brokenness. It's inescapable. You know, we're all excited and concerned about artificial intelligence. I'm waiting for us to, to get a handle on actual intelligence. And we never will, there, because there will always be a brokenness, always be a brokenness in us. I also want us to understand that because of these two things, our spiritual deadness and our moral brokenness, which still operates in, um, in, in uh, paradoxically in the life that we live, we have turned these things and this brokenness into a way of being and a way of life. Remember I said there are a lot of broken things in the world, right? Um, and this is why they're broken. This is um, what our passage gives to us. Uh, next, in the way in which we walked, that is our condition in which we walked following the courses of this world. Of, of course there, are, there is a social reality, an economic reality, a familial reality to this deadness and brokenness. We're bringing it with us everywhere. And so we're given this understanding that, that then our problem is that we take this death paradoxically, and our moral brokenness, and we turn it into a way of being, a way of existing. The reason it took me almost six years to go through college is that about three of them were spent living the most unproductive, frankly, dissipated and sinful life I could muster and imagine. It sounds sort of funny now because it was a typical college experience, but reflecting on it from the perspective of, of the price that Christ paid for that foolishness, it's not funny at all. It's walking in the, in the ways and the air of the world. See, it would be one thing if our depravity remained dead in us and our moral infractions of God's law just remained with us, but then they become a way of doing things, a way of being, a way of embracing one another, a way of using one another. They become a way of spending our money and a way of keeping our money and a way of using our language with one another, a way of, a way of physically harming each other, either through embrace that should be intimate or just violence openly. So God put all, remember, we're not worried about the global, the, the world's messed up, Portland's got its issues, 
we're here at Oaks Parish. And, and we're now being instructed to realize how we bring all this into us, into our space, just like we do at Trinity. But there's always, it becomes a way of life. Death and, and uh, moral transgression of God's law becomes the culture of our life. That's just what happens to us. It is, it is how we are. And, um, but there's also something even more sinister. There's, there's something um, even more concerning. Because what Paul then says is something that's very pre-modern. Um, Paul then layers on top of this a spiritual reality. We were dead in the trespasses of our sins in which we once walked, you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in us. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. The reality of sin is that um, we don't live in a material world. We don't live in a, in a world that's simply orchestrating its, itself. You know, there's some really remarkable things said about the prince of demons in the scripture. In, in one place, he's called the God of this age. Has real dominion, sinister influence, some kind of mysterious authority. Like, what I want us to see is not only are we broken on the inside, not only do we then perpetuate that with one another, but, but there is an oppressive reality around us that influences the world somehow. Like what, what I'm saying is as much beauty and wonder and art and genuinely blessed things as there are in the world, it also lives in a spiritual ecosystem that is ultimately dangerous and opposed to God. I just listen, by the way, if you're, an, if you're a history buff, uh, go find the best history podcast out there. That's just for you to check out. But they just did a, they just did a f uh, four-part series on um, the rise of Nazism. And it is uh, disturbing. And one of the most disturbing things about it is how this principle, this power, this concept starting from the top, really with, with words, be, became the culture of a people. And, and we, too, need to understand. One of the gifts, as we'll see, the wisdom of depravity, if you will, is that it helps us understand ourselves and it helps us understand the world around us. Think about this. If, if our whole paradigm of the world around us is that we just haven't put it together effectively yet, if that's the only problem, then I would say you surely don't need to be here on Sunday morning. But, but if the problem is more profound and more interior, more um, connected to who we are as individuals and a people, that it, if it goes upstream from that, and not only to the way that we are and the way we live with one another and perpetuate our, our sin, but also that there is this spiritual reality around us, well, then that changes, that will change how we, our pathway to joy away from these sorrows. I want us just to embed this. I know this is a, a bit of 
but, but I want us to see really how, how Paul drives this down into us. He's talked about our deadness. He's talked about our moral, the moral culpability um, that we have, that we turn this into um, a way of life and a way of being, and we feed off one another in all of our codependent pathological sinfulness. And then he's layered over the spiritual reality, and um, then he calls us... Um, sons of disobedience or children of dis- this is uh disturbing uh, raise your hand if you woke up this morning and thought i am a child of disobedience raise your hand if you thought i hope my pastor tells me i'm a child of disobedience today or his friend from seattle tells me that but what paul is getting at is the fact that um in the spiritual model, sin is um, actually in a profound way, before we have Christ, sin becomes a state of being for us. It becomes, it becomes who we are in everything we do. Like if you, do you remember, remember COVID? Raise your hand if you remember COVID. Remember when, remember when you had COVID, like you had it all the time, like you had it no matter what your intentions were, right? You, you had it no matter who you were with. You had it no matter what kind of mask you wore. It, it just, in a way, became how you existed until it went away. And guess what? That's what sin is, and in profound ways that are qualified, some in a moment, we'll see, sin doesn't really go away. It just becomes really who we are. I've been walking with Christ for, um, I think, 40-something years now. Uh, don't make me do math. Everybody would have to be quiet, but I was 16, and now I'm 62, so someone tell me afterwards what that is. But, the, um, but what I've noticed, and please understand this, this is going to sound really arrogant, but it's not, I hope. I was talking to Sandy a few weeks ago. I was like, you know, I realize I confess my sins every day and I realize I have fewer specific sins to request forgiveness for. And she was like, oh honey, I'm here to help you. I can help you. And I said, no, that's not what I mean. I, I mean, what, you know, I, I'm not angry like I was when I was 35. You know, other, other things change as you get older, too. You know, I'm not irresponsible like I was when I was 25. But, but what I noticed is that, is that I'm still a sinner. It, like, my appreciation and awareness of my sin is just much more static. It's like, it's, I've started to call it in my prayer, the sin. I, I confess the sin. Now, I have some understandings of where that sin comes from, and I'm not going to tell you what my the sin is, okay? Because honestly, that's just none of your business. You know, it might be my wife's business and my buddy's business, but, but there is in me this meta-sin. I feel like I've only ever committed one sin. I've just done it over and over again in a thousand different names. Because I am... Now, if you're exploring Christianity, you're like, man, this dude is a bummer. 
But actually, to me, because of Christianity, I can see these things and not be oppressed by them. And guess what? They would all be there even if I wasn't ready to look at them. But Jesus made it safe for me to look at the sin and walk with him through it. And before we understand how we did that, we under, need to know, um, well, to understand how he did that, we need to understand one more thing about our depravity. It is accountable. We were, we were, by nature, children, as the Greek says, children of wrath. Now here's something that if you are exploring Christianity, the gospel will never make sense until you understand the truth of that verse. And if you are a Christian and you forgot the truth of that verse, then you must understand that everything we've been speaking of pastorally, textually, stirs up the existential wrath of God for the condemnation of sinners. To be children of wrath, to be, in some translations, the objects of wrath, to be the recipients of the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable holy justice of God is, if you will let me say, at the crux of Christianity. And by crux, of course, I mean the cross. The Bible teaches that we deserve eternal separation from God for our sins. And not only that, but the language of the one teacher who spoke most or more of hell than anyone else in all the scriptures, probably combined, Jesus our Savior, it's not only separation, but there is, it would appear by the language that he uses, uh, active, ongoing anguish and suffering. And this is really what would you and I and the whole world are told that we deserve. Brian said, Mike, will you preach? I said, yes, I'll preach. What do you want me to preach on? He said, preach on sin. Well, you can't preach on sin unless you preach about the consequences of sin. I saw a man at General Assembly, our annual meeting once. And I, I knew him a little bit. I walked by him and I said, hey, how's it going? And he didn't stop. He walked right by. I said, very well, since I should be in hell. And I thought, well, that's kind of flippant. And I looked at him and he said, well, it's true. And he turned around and walked away. Now, flippant or not, it's true. And it's probably better than our um, dismissal of that reality. But see, that's, of course, not where this passage ends. It's where we're going to spend most of our time because Brian told me to preach on sin. But I want to go on to what's next because I want us to see how it explains so much and gives us hope like Father Bede Pay told us. We were objects of wrath and then these great words, but God, 
But God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, remember he says that again, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. That's the whole message. That's what Father Bede Pay said. If you jump all the way down to verse 5 and you don't eat up the first four verses, you'll think you were just invited to an office party. If you don't understand that the first verses, our, under, our understanding of who we are is to bear down on us that we are or were before Christ or are now if you're not in him, we were at the, at the brink of judgment from God and by his mercy he gave us a pass at the cost of his son. There will be no party. You and I, we, will, we won't have the wisdom to understand how magnificent has the love of God been for us? How we really should be in hell. Which, by the way, has never been a popular doctrine. Not in the 16th century when everybody was understanding things better, we think, not really. This is, this is the way forward. This is what I want us to understand. And so... Um, that's why I can look at the sin, my medicine, and, and I have the confidence. So I, I can really look at this. I can talk about this. I can own this. Because guess what? But God. So I got to hold on to Jesus and I get to look at Mike. So I want to give us just a few measures of wisdom out of this. The very first thing is I want you to be thankful. Oh, how thankful we should be. How much God has given to us. Look at you here. You've all been given so much. None of which did you deserve. Not a single thing that you wear. Not any comfort you enjoy. No food that you or I eat. No friends we have. No accomplishments that we celebrate. No air that we breathe, no nothing. Yet, look at all these things that we have. Children of disobedience, objects of wrath, dead in our sins, but made alive in Christ somehow. <laughs> I'm just stumbfounded how unthankful I am when I couldn't even, if you had a gun to my head and said, Mike, list all of your blessings. You've got a day to do it. I don't even think I could do it. I would have to, I couldn't measure them all. But part of joy is to understand, this is inverted, you do not deserve a thing before God, and nor do I. And yet look at us. And that should bring about an avenue for contentment as well. You can't be thankful and discontent. You can be thankful and pray for more and hope for more, but you can't be thankful and discontent. Also, I want us to have the wisdom of self-awareness. John Calvin, who... Um, 
guy lived in the 1500s. I'm sure most of you know him, but I didn't know any of this stuff when I was younger. So there's, if you're like me, I'm here for you. But the, uh, the, um, he, he wrote this book, pretty big deal, called The Institutes of Christian Religion, and this is how he opens it. All the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound knowledge, consists of two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves, and which flows first and which comes from the other is not easy to discern. And in this passage, you have the anchor, the interpretive tool by which to understand both God and yourself. Who you are, who he is, and what he's done in Christ. The matter is, we're not left in this passage. What are we told? We're not left in our deadness. What are we told? We're, we're brought to life. We're made alive in Christ. Now, now there is not this absolute brokenness in you, but there's something alive in you. And so reorient yourself to that. Be aware of that. Understand who you were, but also who Christ is making you. And that, that will give you a pathway to celebration and joy that can only start with a real understanding of your abject need. For your life has now been hidden with God in Christ. It's ascended, this passage has said. So think about the beauty of how we started and hear how we end. You were dead and now you're alive. You walked in a certain way in a, in a kingdom that was dark and now you've been taken up with Christ into heaven and, and here you are. Think of the wonder and the glory. Think of the feast after the fast. Think of the joy after the lamentation. Now you're ready to live because you understand who you were and still what is in you. Now you're ready to do good works. Now you're ready to love other people. You're ready to do all those things. That's why I quoted, I'll let you read it later, but that's why I included the quote from C.S. Lewis, and this is, I'll just point it out and close. Listen, um, do not let your own heart resolve all morality to who's kind and who's not kind. That's too small of a thing. Your problem is much bigger than that. But also so is God's solution in Christ, much, much bigger than that. So let's take hold of this teaching because it explains ourself, but don't stop at the first half. Understand too that God has made you alive in Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies. I ask you please to instruct what you've done and in how we should live. Amen.